Our New Testament reading today is from Matthew chapter 20, verses 1 through 16. If you would like to follow along in the Pew Bible, it's on page 825. So again, from Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. So listen now to the reading of God's holy and inerrant word. For the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house who went out early in the morning to hire laborers for his vineyard. After agreeing with the laborers, For a denarius a day, he sent them into his vineyard. And going about the third hour, he saw others standing idle in the marketplace. And to them he said, You go into the vineyards too, and whatever is right, I will give you. So they went. Going out again about the sixth hour and the ninth hour, he did the same. And about the eleventh hour, he went out and found others standing. And he said to them, Why do you stand here idle all day? They said to him, Because no one has hired us. He said to them, You go into the vineyards too. And when evening came, the owner of the vineyard said to his foreman, Call the laborers and pay them their wages, beginning with the last up to the first. And when those hired about the eleventh hour came, each of them received a denarius. Now when those hired first came, they thought they would receive more, but each of them also received a denarius. And on receiving it, they grumbled at the master of the house, saying, These last worked only one hour, and you have made them equal to us who have borne the burden of the day and the scorching heat. But he replied to one of them, Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Did you not agree with me for a denarius? Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I give to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? So the last will be first and the first will be last. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. Precious God, we we acknowledge that every good and perfect gift comes from your hand. So would you teach us to to live life in light of that reality, to trust you with, with all that we have, recognizing, Father, that it's all of grace. Father, as we place our first fruits before you, would you use them? for the good of your people, and for the glory of your name. And as we come now to your word, would you, by your Spirit, speak? Would you teach us things that maybe we've never truly understood? Would you remind us of things that we've heard but but need to hear again? And ultimately, Father, would you point us to Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith, in whose name we pray. Amen. may be seated. Well, today we conclude a short little sermon series that we've done here this summer uh, on the book of Jonah. I appreciate your being here uh, as I've gotten to preach uh, the last few weeks. There's sometimes the assistant pastor, you kind of feel like the B team, and so, you know, you get a little paranoid, everybody going to not be around, but I appreciate uh, um, your presence here. I hope the study's been beneficial for you. I know it has uh, been beneficial for me personally. Uh, We've seen Jonah, chapter 1, run from God. Uh, Chapter 2, we've seen God supernaturally pursue and rescue him. And then last week we looked at chapter 3 where where God sends Jonah to Nineveh again uh, to preach as he called him to do initially. And and shockingly, these people who were known for their their extreme brutality, rather than, than killing this defenseless Hebrew prophet, they receive his message. They repent. They they turn from their violence, and they fear God, which was absolutely astounding. I mean, this this is what ministers dream of. An entire city, 
who hears the message to turn from God in faith and repentance, and they actually do it. But rather than celebrating what transpired, we find a different response from Jonah, which really gets to the the heart of what the book of Jonah is all about. So let's read Scripture together. I'm going to begin with chapter 3, verse 10, uh, and read into chapter 4. This is found on page 775 uh, in your pew Bible there from Jonah. Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they, they being the Ninevites, the Assyrians, when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them, and he did not do it. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is this not what I said when I was in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? So Jonah went out of the city, and sat to the east of the city, and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade, till he should see what would become of the city. Now the Lord appointed, the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be shade over his head to save him from his discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant and so that it withered. And when the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do very well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should not I pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God stands forever. The title of today's sermon is a question. It's a question from the very last verse that we, we just read from the book of Jonah. Should I not pity Nineveh? It's a question that, that concludes the book, but it's left unanswered. But as we read chapter 4, it's pretty safe to say that there's not a lot of ambiguity on how Jonah would have answered that question. Should God pity Nineveh? Absolutely not. What verse 1 literally says in the Hebrew, that, that when God did this, when he relented from disaster, it said it was evil to Jonah. That God not Destroying these people was evil to him. There's nothing in the world more offensive than God being gracious to these people. And it's here where we finally understand why Jonah ran from God in the first place. Jonah knew that God told him to go to Nineveh, not to give them a heads up about their upcoming destruction, but as an invitation to turn to him. 
Jonah knew that the possibility existed that Nineveh would repent because Jonah knew that God was more interested in being gracious than bringing down judgment, that these people might experience his mercy. And the reason Jonah knew this was because Jonah knew the Bible. In verse 2, we, we find Jonah appealing to the exact same description we saw it in our call to worship. Steve appealed to it. We saw it in 10,000 reasons. It's this, this language that's repeated in the Old Testament over and over again that God describes himself as compassionate, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. Jonah knows all this, and he can't stand it. My wife and I are parents of two young boys, um, and they have many, many talents. I look forward to them growing up and seeing what, what, are, what are they good at. But one of the things that they've mastered at this point in their life is the art of throwing a temper tantrum. It, it, they do it very well, second to none maybe. Um, something happens that isn't pleasing to them, and, and they respond with a, an irrational, bold, belligerent even expression of rage, and sometimes in a public place. Um, I read Jonah's meltdown here, and it sounds vaguely familiar to what I've experienced with my own children. I mean, Jonah goes as far as to state to God that he is angry enough to die over a plant. It's hard to take him seriously. But, But if we just you know, read this and write Jonah off as being childish, we're going to miss what's taking place inside of his heart that is leading him to react with such hostility. And in chapter 4, God pursues Jonah again. He's going to confront what's going on in Jonah's heart with the hope that one day Jonah might hear that question, should I not pity Nineveh? And answer it differently. And so in confronting Jonah, God is going to do at least two things. He's going to remake his identity, and he's going to reorient his trust. Those are going to serve as our two points for today. First, God's going to to remake his identity. Last week, we spent some time talking about about God's mission, okay, which we said was global in scope. God's desire is to bring people from every tribe, tongue, and nation under the lordship of Christ. Ultimately, to redeem all of creation, which is why the book, the book of Jonah we just read about, it it talks about God's concern for the Ninevites' cattle. I mean, it's just weird. But But it makes perfect sense when you think about it. If God is interested in more than just saving souls, but he's interested in all of creation, then it makes perfect sense. And the instrument that God chose to bring the nations together was Israel. All the way back in in Genesis chapter 12, after separating the nations in the previous chapter, Tower of Babel, Genesis chapter 11, all the people are separated. At that point, God promised to make the descendants of this guy Abram, Abram at this point, a great nation. Tells him this, I will make you a great nation, I will make your name great, I will bless those who bless, those, bless you and curse those who curse you. And then God says this. In you, all the nations of the world will be blessed. The nation, the descendants of Abraham, would not simply exist as an end unto themselves. They were to be a blessing for all the nations. But by the time we reach Jonah's generation... The nation has lost sight of this mission. And Jonah represents Israel. 
A nation that has become self-absorbed, focusing on on their greatness, on their self-preservation, on their prosperity. They'd come to believe that, that God was only interested in them, that he was their God only. He was even their possession. And therefore, he was to act in their best interest as they defined them. And so Jonah hates the idea that God would concern himself with these non-Jewish people because it, it ran counter to his national and racial and religious identity. I mean, keep in mind that in the Old Testament, being part of Israel was, was wrapped up in a number of different things. It was your nationality, but it was also your religion, and it was your race as well. All of that was wrapped up into one thing. And of course, there was nothing wrong with that for them. God was the one who set it up that way. But having lost sight of this global mission, Jonah's operating paradigm has become us versus them. His identity is wrapped up not so much in a love for God, but in his superiority. And so, I mean, to use the, the terminology of today, Jonah's a racist, he's, he's a nationalist. He's an elitist with what he believes to be biblical justification for being that way. And so God's grace is for us, but it's not really for them, or maybe not in the same sense. In Jonah's thinking, for God to show grace to Israel's enemies meant that Israel was no longer being favored. God's grace was essentially a zero-sum game. So if God shows grace to Nineveh, that means he's not showing it to Israel. And so, of course he wants to die. He's not kidding here. All that he was holding so dear, the thing that made him feel superior to everyone else begins to crumble as Nineveh turns to God and he is devastated. What's exposed here is Jonah's idolatry. Jonah has essentially built his identity on something other than, than God himself, which, which is dangerously deceptive here for Jonah because it's associated with God. It's connected to God, but it isn't God himself. What's captured Jonah's heart is his racial and national and religious superiority. This is the God that he's worshiping. And what happens? What happens when those things that we're really worshiping get ripped from us? is that life isn't worth living any longer. It's a good question for us to ask ourselves, actually. What are we building our identity around so much so that if it no longer was there, life would no longer be worth living? Perhaps it's even something we've associated with God, but it's not God himself. You know, we're living in, in fascinating times right now. 21st century Americans, uh, never in my lifetime have we seen such extreme polarization and toxicity, uh, socially, politically, whatever. And, And oftentimes what happens in the midst of all this chaos is that what we're really trusting in starts being exposed. As believers, we are no longer living in an era where our religion and our race and our nation are one and the same. Through Jesus Christ, Israel has expanded to include the Gentiles, expanded to include people like the people in this room. 
People from numerous races and nations have been brought into God's people, which means that we can no longer say that God has a special relationship with one particular race or one particular nation, as if the United States of America or even the present-day nation-state of Israel, that's God's people. The church, comprised of Jews, Gentiles, that's God's people. And for the believer, it is this identity that must be first and foremost in our thinking, not our nationality and not our race. Certainly, every human being is, is born with a particular skin color, born in a particular place, brought up with a particular culture. That's just reality. There's nothing necessarily wrong with that. We can appreciate and even value where we come from and our background and our culture, but these are inconsequential in terms of salvation. And for the believer, they're secondary in the formation of our identity to what truly matters, which is who we are in Christ. The last several years, um, the denomination that that we're a part of, the the Presbyterian Church in America, we've been doing a little bit of soul-searching. Soul-searching about our history, particularly as as it pertains to the subject of race. The result of which was last summer at our annual General Assembly, we publicly recognized and confessed and condemned and repented of our sin of racism that was present at our founding, has continued even into our existence now. We owned up to the fact that even as Christians seeking to follow Jesus on this particular subject, we were wrong. We were blind. We lost ourselves in the prevailing ideas of the culture around us, a culture that we even contribute to by using false biblical rationales to to justify our thinking and even perpetuate the status quo. Our history tells us that it is possible for us to hold to and even baptize prejudices, philosophies, and policies that are contrary to our identity as citizens of Christ's kingdom, which, again, that's our primary primary allegiance. And in this, we're like Jonah, happy to receive God's mercy. Thank you for saving me but not all that concerned with other people experiencing it. And so Jonah, need, Jonah leaves Nineveh. He parks himself outside the city, hoping that God would, would change his mind and throw down wrath on these people. And again, God responds to Jonah with grace, this time in the form of a plant. Jonah's in the middle of the desert. He's exhausted from all that's taken place. He's fuming mad. And the, the little booth thing that he set up to block the shades, not really doing the job. And so seeing him in this state, God sends him some shade. He gives him shelter. And Jonah is thrilled. And then God takes the plan away, and Jonah loses his mind. And, and if you're like me, you're tempted to sort of look at it and go, okay, God, why are you just like messing with this guy? You know? I mean, it just feels like he's toying with him. But God's going to teach him something through him, both receiving and losing this plant. And the lesson that God's going to teach him can be seen in verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. You pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow. In other words, what you had in this plant was a gift. You didn't earn it. You weren't entitled to it. 
It was solely my grace, as is everything you have, including the thing that you are so prideful about, your status as part of my people, your relationship with me, which despite yourself, as we witnessed in chapter 1 and 2, isn't about you. You're not that great of a guy. You'd be dead at the bottom of the Mediterranean right now were it not for my grace. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul makes a statement that's become one of my favorite verses in the Bible. He writes this, What do you have that you did not receive? What do you have that wasn't a gift given to you? Everything we have is a gift. The same is true for us as well. Our existence is not something that we're responsible for, nor are the abilities that we have to accomplish what we can be so proud of, nor is our salvation. And the clear implication of experiencing God's grace is that we're to express that to others. We're to be a blessing, blessed to be a blessing, blessing for other people. And the idea that that Jonah has pity for the plant and has no pity for these people, speaks volumes about the condition of his heart. Jonah is a cautionary tale for us. that It's possible to experience the grace of God and then lose sight of that. To, to borrow a, an expression from a former college football coach, a guy named Barry Switzer, he said this, it's possible to be born on third base and think you hit a triple, which is why God has to continually remind his people again and again that everything that we have, who we are, our identity, is not the result of our greatness, but is the result of unmerited grace. Grace that then shapes how we treat others and how we interact with the world. But this isn't the only problem that that God's got to address in Jonah's heart, because, because Jonah's anger is not just about nationalism, racism, elitism, whatever. It's about justice as well. So we saw last week that the salvation of the Ninevites shows that God can save anyone. But Jonah's issue is not whether God can save these people, it's whether God should. Jonah doesn't believe that God's decision to save these people is right. And so God's got to, and this gets our second point, reorient his trust. For Jonah, these people are so depraved. The atrocities that they've committed are so unspeakably horrific that that to forgive them is unfathomable. And and we don't know if this is personal for Jonah. If Jonah's family or his friends or his community have been victims of the brutality of the Ninevites. But what we do know is that in the centuries that will follow, Assyria will rise. And they will take the northern kingdom. They will slaughter many of God's people. In Jonah's mind, the last thing these people need is mercy. Because mercy's not for these kinds of sinners. Now, now Jonah certainly would have acknowledged himself to be a sinner. Sure, yes, I'm a sinner. But to borrow uh, an expression from a pastor friend of mine, God's grace is for reasonable sinners. The occasional mishap, the accidental mistake, the, the slip of the tongue, the wandering thought, the lapse in judgment. But, but these people are barbarians. Their sin is so depraved, so horrific, 
It brings us to an understandable question. Is there an evil so despicable, so deplorable, that it shouldn't be forgiven? An evil so vile to forgive it means to excuse the inexcusable. You know, it's common to, to hear people make the claim that all sin is the same. All sin is the same. Which, which by the way, Scripture does not teach that. Um, I suspect that the impulse behind making that claim is to attempt to avoid some hierarchy of sin where you know people could feel like, well, at least I never did that, so I'm better than you, which I'm, I'm sort of sympathetic to. But deep down, we know that there are things that take place on this planet that are so reprehensible, we can't even comprehend them. Actions that, that just turn our stomachs, jar our souls, are etched in our memories and have scarred us. Things that demand justice. And so what Jonah is feeling right here is, is to borrow the words from Malachi, where is the God of justice? Now, it's important to point out that even though he's angry, Jonah is praying to God, which is huge. It's very different from the approach that we saw in chapter 1, where Jonah's just simply shut God out. Recently, I witnessed sort of an online back and forth on the subject of whether or not it's ever appropriate to to be angry with God. Is it right to be angry with God? A pretty prominent figure made the statement that, you know, it's simply wrong. End of story. Wrong to be angry with God. Now, to be clear, I don't think it's like a good thing to go around being angry with God. Certainly, we don't see Jonah's behavior here presented as as commendable. But in the kindness of God, he allows Jonah to be angry. God even allows Jonah to say harsh things to him. In fact, I mean, if you read the Psalms, a significant number of them involve people being really honest with God, using those words, which, which we believe are God's inspired words, to say hard things to God. He's provided the words for us to express our feelings to him, feelings that are not always positive. Feelings like fear or doubt or even anger. And the reason that God does this is not so we can just wallow in the abyss of our own feelings, but so that we can work through our feelings and come out with a renewed sense of, of hope and trust. But there are some psalms that, frankly, the church has really struggled to know what to do with throughout its history. Um, These psalms are referred to as as imprecatory psalms. There's your scholarly lesson for today. Imprecatory psalms, okay? Um, Psalms, for instance, like Psalm 137. Psalms that articulate a downright hatred and anger towards the writer's enemies. And the reason that the church has struggled with these is because it seems to violate the teachings of Jesus that we are, to look back at your words of reflection, we're to love our enemies. We're to pray for those who persecute us. And so we're tempted to go, well, which is it? Which is it? Are we supposed to love our enemies? Are we supposed to be angry and long for justice? Earlier we saw this refrain, slow to anger abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin. That refrain that we hear, it's throughout the Bible, but the first time we see it is all the way back in Exodus chapter 34. Moses on Mount Sinai. 
But if we look at what Jonah quotes here, he actually only quotes the first half of that verse. The whole verse reads this way. The Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, but who by no means will clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and to the fourth generation. While God is compassionate, and this is highlighted first, and it's given more emphasis, there is justice. And what we find here is Jonah interpreting God's grace to be at the expense of his justice. Basically, Jonah is saying this, God, you're a pushover. You're just too nice. You're just letting everything go. Where is the God of justice? People are doing whatever they want, and he's not doing anything about it. And Jonah's longing for justice, to be clear, is not necessarily wrong. There is something, understandably, and even right about when we see injustice, that, that when we see the idea that evil is winning, something rises up within us. Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 4, in your anger do not sin. The implications of that verse, of course, is that those two are not one and the same. You can be angry and not sin. But there's also the real connection between the two in that anger can very much lead to sin. So the question is, what do we do with that, that longing for justice when we see horrible, terrible things happening? You know, some of the most angry people in the world are religious people. And one of the reasons why religious people can be very angry people is because they have a pretty intense sense of right and wrong, but they always don't know what to do with it. I mean, for some, it's, it's sort of resignation. Everything is terrible, everybody is terrible, and it's always going to be that way. That's why Christians can sort of walk around with a sour look on their face, complaining and being bitter. For others, their response is to seek vengeance. That's why religious people blow up buildings. It's also why Jesus was killed. Keep in mind that it was religious people that that murdered the Messiah. But what we're called to as Christians is not simply to, to resign ourselves to the inevitability of evil triumphing, nor are we called to seek vengeance on our own. Instead, we are called to take what we are encountering to God. One theologian put it this way, I bid you, vent your rage into the bosom of God. Jesus' words to love our enemies, to, to, to pray for those who persecute us, those words don't simply mean, get over it. Let it go. Who cares? What we're to do is to take our pain and our hurt and our frustration and our anger and take it to God, trusting that he knows, trusting that he sees, and trusting that he will do what's right in his timing. If God's extending mercy here, it's because he knows what's best, because he knows what's right, because God is the definition of what is right. 
That's what our New Testament reading from Matthew 20 is all about. This whole salvation thing is God's project, and God is the one who will distribute what is right and fair according to his character, which is both gracious and compassionate and also just. God's going to extend mercy to Nineveh at this moment. But if you know the rest of the story, you know that although this generation of Ninevites, they repent, the generations that follow turn back from their evil ways. And around a century later, God, through the prophet Nahum, tells them of the wrath that's going to come to their city. And God's justice eventually came, which is why there is no such place as Nineveh anymore. But what Jonah has to realize is that God extending mercy to Nineveh here is not free. Remember the old bumper sticker? It says, you know, freedom isn't free. Remember those? That's exactly the idea here. Mercy may be free in our experience, but it costs someone else. Extending mercy to sinners costs. It costs God. It costs him infinitely. It costs him the death of his own son. But it's at the cross where we see both sides of God's character reflected. Both sides of Exodus 34 taking place, manifested. God is compassionate and he is gracious to sinners. And he punishes sin. And the way he does it is by absorbing all the debt himself. So that anyone who would place their trust in him, in his provision, in what he accomplished, regardless of what their sin may be, wouldn't have to experience the justice they deserve. That includes the the terrible things that turn our stomach. includes the terrible things that we've done, too. Not all sin is the same, but the disease of sin is within us all, and God delights in showing mercy to sinners through the person and work of Jesus. And so should God pity Nineveh? We don't get an answer from Jonah, at least not in our text. But there's an argument to be made that he he got the message. If this is a historical account, which Jesus acknowledges it to be, then the only person who would know these facts would be Jonah himself. And the only way they got out was if Jonah himself told them, which says a lot about Jonah. Jonah's willingness to to share his story, a story that, that frankly makes him look pretty petty, pretty ridiculous, kind of racist, and definitely self-righteous. It indicates that his identity, his willingness to do this, indicates that his identity wasn't so much caught up in his reputation anymore. If he's willing to be a cautionary tale for centuries, then perhaps his identity has shifted a bit. It's no longer wrapped up in his race, in his nationality, or in his righteousness. It had moved elsewhere to the grace of God, God's grace even for someone like him. But the book of Jonah leaves us with an open-ended question, not just for Jonah to ponder It's a question for us, too, as those who have experienced God's grace in Christ, to ponder as well about ourselves, to to reflect on the extent to which we believe this about ourselves, our desperate need and God's grace for people even like me, which is our only hope. 
It leaves us with this question so that when approached with the question, should God pity those people, our impulse would be yes. You know why? Because he pitied me. And if he did that for me, if he did that for us, we long to see him do that for other people too. So may we hear this question. And may we answer yes. Let's pray. Gracious God, you are far more gracious than we often give you credit for. Father, I pray that you would help us to see ourselves in this story, that you would save us from our self-righteousness, that you would make us into people of compassion, you would help us to trust that you are a God who will wipe away every tear, and you will make all things new and right in your time. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.